Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 30. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Jamie Manirakiza. Jamie is the executive director at the Partnership to End Human Trafficking, otherwise known as PEHT. She is a licensed and master's level social worker who studied at the University of Pennsylvania before embarking upon a career to shine a bright spotlight on the problem of human trafficking while helping those caught and released from that dangerous net. The Partnership to End Human Trafficking is a nonprofit organization that provides individuals with a pathway toward healing and independence through community outreach, residential recovery, and economic empowerment. In this episode, we discuss the realities of human trafficking, what can be done about it, and the work to help the survivors that is being done at the Partnership to End Human Trafficking. It is a heavy but incredibly powerful conversation that is needed. And as a pediatrician who spends the vast majority of my day taking care of young children, boys and girls, I find this topic to be very, very important because these are the kids that potentially could fall into this trap and be subject to a survival situation that looks like modern day slavery. So I'm going to leave it here as we begin to discuss the world of human trafficking with Jamie Manir Akiza. Well, hello, Jamie Manor Akiza. It is a pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, it is a very tough topic, uh, something that I uh, am a little hesitant to go down this road, but I think when we dive deep into this information, it's going to be very helpful for society and the folks that listen to this podcast to really understand what we're talking about, because it is a very tough topic today. So welcome. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about human trafficking today. And again, as a pediatrician, this hits my heart really hard. But it is estimated that the business of human trafficking now exceeds $150 billion annually, $99 billion coming from the sex trafficking industry alone. It's the second largest and fastest growing illegal business in the world, which is very stressful to hear. I looked up some local stats to add a little regional reality for me and the listeners who are local to understand the local impact of human trafficking. The Charlotte region is ranked number one in North Carolina for human trafficking. According to National Human Trafficking Resource Center, there is now an average of 78 sex trafficking cases every year in North Carolina, and Charlotte is that number one city. Charlotte serves as an artery for human trafficking as our city is located at the junction of two major interstates with a direct route for shipping ports, which was interesting to hear that part. So, Jamie, I know that you and your organization, um, you know, the Partnership to End Human Trafficking, you're located in the Northeast, so you have your regional issues, I'm sure. Take us through, you know, what is human trafficking? What are the stats? Why are humans being trafficked? And why does it seem like we're struggling to control this problem of modern forced labor and sex abuse? Yeah, well, thank you for that um, really informative introduction. I think it lays the foundation for the audience in terms of this issue, especially on a global um, global scale, right? Because we, we can't talk about human trafficking without acknowledging just the globalization how and how much that has impacted 
unfortunately, the forced um, trade of vulnerable persons. Um, and so if we jump nationally, right, from that global perspective of those very large numbers in terms of the finances of human trafficking as a very lucrative um, international enterprise, um, we can also throw out the global statistic that it's estimated that 40.3 million people are experiencing forms of forced labor or sexual servitude at any given point in the time, um, any given point in time. And that is from the International Labor Organization. The challenge is that statistics are hard to come by and hard to continuously document for many reasons. You know, the primary one being that trafficking of persons, um, similar to the drug trade or weapons trade, is an underground organized criminal enterprise. And so it, it, it's harder to identify. Um, another really prominent reason that trafficking is really hard to identify, especially if we zoom into our national problem here in the United States across every community in the US, both suburban and urban and rural, um, is that victims almost never self-identify as a victim of this crime. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is, you know, in defining what trafficking is. Um, and so human trafficking takes two forms, just to give a real high level overview for our listeners today, um, sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Um, if we hone in on talking about commercial sexual exploitation and sex trafficking, um, particularly as that impacts children and adults, um, I, I want to just break down that definition for us. Um, so sex trafficking um, starts by an act. So somebody re recruits a young person on an online forum. Um, somebody obtains that person, right? So it could start with um, a malicious predator who goes into a chat room or on a social media app posing as somebody that they're not and begins a conversation with a individual who is seeking relationship um, for whatever reasons, right? Um, and preys upon that person's vulnerability as they start to chat with them and talk with them, um, and then eventually might lure them out from the internet to meet in person. Um, and we, we hear of stories of this, right, um, commonly. And, and this is one means by which somebody might be recruited. Um, and then so that, that, that's the act. That's one of the elements of an act. The act can also be provisioning, harboring, transporting, soliciting of a person, right? And, and, and sometimes we see the act begin, unfortunately, with a person that is known to the individual. So, you know, sometimes people have this stranger danger notion when it comes to human trafficking. And I think a, a common myth that I want to dispel is that um, the majority of cases that I've worked with in the over the decade that I've been in this field, actually the perpetrator and the trafficker or the first person to have trafficked the individual um, was somebody who was known to them, either very closely known as a family member um, or might have been in their neighborhood. Um, so it wasn't always sort of this stranger danger abduction um, on the recruitment end. Um, and then what happens is there's these elements of control. 
that begin to go into place. So somebody gets recruited, then there's these means that somebody is trafficked by, force, fraud, or coercion. Um, and those elements are typically, the coercive elements are really the hardest to identify because they're, uh, they, they really prey upon the psychological nature of entrapping somebody and maintaining them. Um, and then it's for the purpose. What is that end purpose? And if we think about commercial sexual exploitation and sex trafficking, um, it's for selling sex acts for anything of value, food, money, shelter, drugs, whatever that might be. Um, I can pause there for our listeners, let you jump in if there's. Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to dive a little deeper there. Cause I think that's a really important point for, for the parents and the guests listening right now is that it's, it, it can be, and maybe often is somebody that's known to the person. So in order for that to happen, oftentimes the child or the person has somewhat of a disaffected experience in their life that makes them reach out to somebody in a way to obtain connection that may or may not be in their best interest. So when I think about chat rooms or somebody's on a chat room and they're talking to somebody who's inappropriate, oftentimes that tells me that maybe their local environment is not as good as it should be, forcing them to seek outside of their local environment to find somebody to fill a need of connection. So how much do we understand about that part of it? Because when parents listen, they say, well, it wouldn't happen to my kid because my kid is this happy you know, child in a local environment. Do we know more about that? Is it usually a child who's disaffected or a child in a foster home environment, a child in an abusive environment? Um, so I, I guess I would answer in, in sort of a, in two parts. Um, certainly, there are a lot of studies that have occurred that have looked at vulnerable populations, um, particularly system-involved youth, so individuals who, as you mentioned, might be um, for whatever reason, be placed in out of their direct um, biological home environment and in foster care, child protective services care, or may have prior histories of abuse or neglect. Um, those vulnerabilities certainly um, make somebody at very high risk for predators of trafficking. And there's a lot of statistics around runaway and homeless youth. Um, the FBI had a statistic at one point that within 48 hours, um, a runaway or homeless youth typically is approached by somebody who um, may lure them into the sex trade, into um, sex trafficking, domestic minor sex trafficking. Um, there was a study out of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, it's a little bit dated now on runaway and homeless youth in the city that looked at um, stories of runaway and homeless youth and, and the points in which they might have been um, vulnerable to traffickers. Um, and so it's definitely very common. Um, there's a lot of disproportionality um, around um, young people of color, um, the criminal justice involvement, um, and marginalized communities that are disproportionately impacted um, and recruited by traffickers. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't also cases sometimes that we've come across where um, somebody may not be system involved, may not be a runaway, but may be um, seeking relationship um, and for whatever reason, being uh, low self-esteem, bullying at school, um, seeking companionship and fall into a, a prey or recruitment strategy 
by a trafficker that poses as a boyfriend at first as sort of a Romeo pimp um, and through various forms of conditioning um, that individual may um, turn them over and, and, and begin exploiting them. So we've, we've seen scenarios where somebody might be in um, a household where they have supervision, um, where they are in community, but maybe they're getting bullied at school. And so they seek um, other ways in which they're trying to build relationships and they, they might fall prey to somebody with, with poor intent. Um, so there really is a range of ways that people get um, recruited and then ultimately victimized. So you, you noted that there's a gender bias towards women. Is there a, a, other than the Romeo pimp, is there a Juliet pimp for the other side, for the, for the, whatever it is, 25% of humanly trafficked children or adults that are, that are of the male uh, gender? Yeah. So, so I, trafficking impacts male, female, LGBTQ individuals, um, I would say that they're higher risk actually for the LGBTQ community. Um, there's also um, a significant underreporting of male, um, particularly in sex trafficking. Um, and we see that's sort of similar and consistent with underreporting of, of child male sexual abuse, underreporting. Um, and I think there's, there's challenges and barriers around stigma and how we communicate um, across genders, um, when it comes to just victimization and, and sexual exploitation. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think, forgive me, I should stop. I'm going to be your person on that. Yeah, no worries. Um, the question, the beginning of the question, I don't, I think I lost track of. Yeah, no worries. So the, the, is, is, for the Romeo side of the game, is uh, there a jewel, is there a Juliet pimp? often in play for the for the boy or the the gender that is is lgbtq associated with that that situation yeah so i mean pimps and traffickers can can take different forms whether it's a romeo pimp who lures somebody in with the false promises and fraudulent promises of a boyfriend or a partner and that can go either way as it as it relates to gender um and we've also seen female pimps, uh, male or female pimps, um, and um, gender non-conforming individuals. So it, it really doesn't have to be one when gender fits all for either the perpetrator or the individual who's victimized. Um, although statistically, we do see higher proportions of sort of male-female um, trafficking situations. Um, but that I think there's a significant room for improvement in identification. Right. What is the age that's most affected? When does it start? And when, what is the, the, the average age that's being put into the sex trade or the human trafficking trade? Yeah. So, you know, that's a statistic that's, that's often highly contested. Um, but a common age of entry is between 11 to 14 years old would be the wide range. Um, I, I can share that anecdotally, working in this field since 2009, um, I've worked with individuals who have been identified as being sex trafficked domestically um, here in the US as young as seven and nine years old, um, as well as a lot of common cases of teens, um, 14, 15, 16 years old. And typically the point in which we're identifying them as a service provider is, is after it's been going on, right? Meaning it, it started at an earlier point. 
that's really hard to hear those those ages i mean any age is terrible but seven nine it's just it's just it hurts the soul to even listen to those numbers so which groups are are controlling the trade in this country uh, specifically do we know is it gangs is it mafia is it all of the above yeah i mean so I'm not a law enforcement professional, so I'll say this with a caveat that um, there's certainly gang related trafficking and depending on the community you're in, um, there might be more if there's more gang related activity, for example, typically there's there's definitely trafficking of individuals for sexual servitude purposes. Um, you know, a quick example would be if a police officer does is doing a drug bust right and pulls over a suspicious vehicle on the highway and that dealer has three girls in the car with him if he has a ton of bags of cocaine in the car the vehicle and it gets searched he's busted right like plain and simple um your evidence is there and it you can't really look away from it now if that if that same person has no you know drugs maybe in the glove box but just has three girls in the car that they're trafficking um, and gets pulled over on the highway by that same police officer, they're at far less risk of being um, arrested or outed for the crime in which the lucrative crime in which they're committing by selling those individuals repeatedly, right? Um, and so gangs and a lot of organized criminal networks have gotten really smart at how they can leverage both selling individuals and um, the drug trade. Um, and sometimes we've also seen um, traffickers placing the drugs on the person of their victims. So they also, you know, seek to make their victims culpable for the crimes that they're also committing. Um, and, and so there's a lot of nuances and challenges when it comes to that. Um, and because of those coercive methods that I mentioned earlier, um, individuals who are a victim of this crime almost never self-identify as a victim because of those coercive and manipulation methods that the traffickers invested in. And so they're not usually calling 911 the way you or I might or our listeners might if their house gets robbed, for example, um, because of that manipulation. Um, and, and so it takes more proactive investigation to, to find those individuals and to speak to them about what's happening. Um, other actors that we see who are controlling this outside of large criminal enterprises um, includes family. We see a lot of familial trafficking. If you go on the National Human Trafficking Resource Center um, website, Polaris Project, uh, formerly Polaris Project, you can see that familial trafficking is a very common form, particularly in the United States. And when we look at cases that we're identifying very um, ongoingly in our regions wow, or, or for individuals that are known, right? Like a, a stepfather, a stepmother, a cousin. Um, sometimes there's generational trafficking that's happening or generational pimping. Yeah. That's that's another really disturbing reality because the person the person or people that are supposed to be loving and the most trustworthy in your life are the ones who are damaging you the most. I mean, that has to send shockwaves through a person to know that the person they're supposed to be loved and trusted by are the ones who are perpetrating the violence against them. It's just awful. So I want to switch to some examples so people can hear real life stories, um, de-identified, of course. Um, but one question before we flip to that: Do young women and men in your in in your situation show up often with drug history i.e they enter the traffic tr the trade and then all of a sudden they're pushed on drugs 
What do you what what do we know about that? So I would say, um, once again, it may vary based upon the community and sometimes the age of the individual. Um, but very commonly, those that I've worked with and that we at Partnership 10 Human Trafficking typically serve um, have histories at the point in which we're serving them of substance use, right? Um, where they do, they may have a drug um misuse problem, whether it's with crack cocaine, heroin, or opioids, um, PCP. With young people, we've seen a lot of PCP, K2, sort of synthetic drugs that, that have been actually very dangerous for young people. Um, and I just think it's helpful to point out sort of the myth, right, that folks might be out there. I think there's a lot of unhealthy societal myths where we, we look at forms of forced prostitution in various parts of our community, and we think, and if we, especially if we identify that somebody might have a drug addiction issue and we see that they may be in forms of forced prostitution, we, we think that there's a choice involved, that they're out there to support an addiction. And I, I think it's really important to understand that um, often traffickers and drug dealers will utilize controlled substances to control and maintain and continue the victimization of their of their victim using using drugs. Um, and so much so that that's been added into many states' legislation around um, elements of coercion um, is facilitating or controlling access to somebody else's um, controlled substance um, as a way of coercing and controlling them. Um, and so that's a really common element and it requires um, the aftercare system providers in our community to respond um, ready with addressing that issue. Yeah. Wow. Ooh, so much heaviness here. It's uh, it's 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 just tough, 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 tough. Well, let's go to some real life stories, which is going to be even heavier. But I think again, this is stuff we need to get out there so people are aware, and and more knowledgeable about what the the great work you guys are doing to help these these children and these uh, adolescents and adults. Yeah. So I mean. Here at Partnership 10 Human Trafficking, as you mentioned, we're located in the Northeast. Um, we're close to the New York border. We're actually headquartered in Connecticut. Um, we have seen a number of cases since opening up our, we operate a residential home for survivors as well as community-based outreach services and an employment social enterprise business. Um, we receive referrals from all over the country. So since we opened, we've had referrals come from Florida, New York, California, Connecticut. Um, I want to just hone in on um, one of the particular individuals um, who was first referred to our housing program in January of 2021. Um, this individual um, name is Iris, which is a pseudonym, um, moved into our home and um, she was exiting a program that she was no longer able to stay at and was essentially homeless. Um, she was seeking shelter in her, she was in her twenties. Um, and we were able to thankfully bring her into our two year transitional housing program. And she just began to thrive when she got here. So she had gone from a place where, um, she had had a lot of fear, um, didn't feel very mobile to just begin to attain her goals, get back out into the community, um, travel on her own. Um, something that was particularly a huge fear for her was traveling on public transportation alone. Um, 
Anyhow, so we, when we brought her into our program, we just provided a lot of care and shelter and warmth. Um, we gave her space to just begin to rest and heal and begin to engage in our on-site psychoeducational therapy groups that we do. We do expressive arts groups on site. Um, and then after six months in our program, we offer survivors the opportunity to um, work in our social enterprise business where they can make a meaningful salary, where they can begin to save, where they can do financial literacy and just begin to identify their employment skills that they want to hone in on, whether it's with us or with another employer after us. Um, and it's not required that they work for us, although every person so far that we offered employment to has joined the business. Um, we've now uh, provided employment and jobs for five individuals who have come through our program. Um, and Iris, you know, was one of those very first people who joined our employment. Um, and I'm just excited to share that she not only has a fantastic attendance record and has contributed so much to our growing business, um, but she has successfully completed a full year of employment with us, right? So we celebrate her 30 days, 90 days, and now it's been over a year employed. Um, she also obtained her own apartment um, and moved out this past spring. Um, and I mentioned earlier that when she first came to live with us, she was, you know, afraid of riding the train or being on public transportation alone. And she has now um, thoroughly flourished in public transportation and takes takes it back and forth from work um, and has really just taken the steps on her own. Right. And, and we see ourselves as walking alongside individuals and just trying to remove the barriers that often prevent people from, you know, really attaining their um, self-sufficiency and, and, and seeing what they can do. So it's been an amazing process to see the opportunities presented and seeing the ways in which um, this individual has been able to thrive. And I could give, you know, countless other stories of women who have gone through our home that are now just thriving in so many ways. Um, we have two women right now who enrolled in community college and are pursuing their undergraduate degrees uh, while in residence. And they are just really empowered to be back in school, um, it, you know, which they weren't, didn't think was going to be attainable this quickly. That's an incredible story from Iris. And then as well, what your organization is doing is just incredibly impactful, giving people back their ability to hold space. You guys are holding space for them while they work through their healing, but also get themselves a, a bridge to self-esteem, which is then a bridge to the rest of a normal, meaningful life within the framework of somebody being victimized. So kudos to you guys for doing all that heavy lifting up on the front end and now allowing people to be a part of the heavy lifting, which I think is also incredibly empowering. So in, when you talk about Iris joining the force of helping others who are suffering similarly, that is just an amazing gift for her to give back to society, having gone through such traumatic events for her. So I just applaud all of the efforts you guys are doing up there. Before we pivot back to a little bit of your organization again, um, is there a disparity between rural and urban exposure to the trafficking issue or is it mostly in city centers or stuff of that nature do we know that answer because i know people tend to think oh i live around the rural community i live in farming lands this doesn't happen out here and from what i understand that's not true yeah so i guess let me take a minute to talk a little bit as well about labor trafficking because i think um i don't have great 
direct statistics. Um, this is the prevalence in a rural community versus urban. Um, I can tell you that anecdotally, there are cases that we've worked with that are like place of origin of trafficking originates in a rural, suburban, definitely suburban and urban setting. Um, there is a disproportionate amount of, I would say, labor trafficking cases, depending on the industries that are in your community. Um, and so what I would say, too, to thinking about folks who may say, hey, I'm in a rural farming community, I would say not only do you want to identify how might um, trucking routes that weave through your town, how does that potentially bring in commercially sexually exploited individuals um, at truck stops, at um, strip clubs or massage parlors, other hotspot venues um, that typically, right? So trafficking is supply and demand. So if there's a demand for commercially sexually exploited individuals, then traffickers will find a way to supply that demand, um, which means that it can touch any community. Um, on the labor trafficking side, big industries um, are the agricultural community, landscaping, construction, roofing, tree cutting, up in the Northeast, snow plowing, um, you know, skilled labored um, laborers, particularly those who may be um, immigrants or migrants, and, and it not necessarily documented or undocumented, right? So there's a lot of cases of individuals who are brought over on guest worker visas to and to help support our farming and agriculture community that become um, labor trafficked by um, malicious employers that then you know don't pay them, have harsh working conditions, threaten them if they ask for their pay. We've had numerous cases um, here in Connecticut. When I worked in uh, the Pennsylvania region, we had a lot of landscaping and agricultural cases of labor trafficking. And unfortunately that does um, touch in a lot of rural communities. So there's a lot uh, that can be done around raising awareness um, around knowing your rights um, as it pertains to labor exploitation. And sometimes we've seen children um, particularly brought over as well for that purpose. Yeah. Let's pivot now a little bit to myths versus facts. Clearly, this is a topic uh, that has been in the the media sphere for years, but it doesn't seem to gain the traction that I would think it would for such a horrific problem in society. What are the myths and what are the facts that, that we know uh, that are perpetrated out there in the media versus what's really going on? Well, I would say, you know, one common myth is that individuals are all foreign born, right? So when we hear trafficking, particularly when we're in the U.S. context, people will think, oh, well, that happens somewhere else in Cambodia or Southeast Asia, but it doesn't happen here, right? So that's, that's certainly a common myth uh, that I think we've dispelled. In my over decade of working in this field across different states in the U.S., the primary cases I've worked with which has been hundreds of individuals who have been victimized are, are born and raised here in the United States. They're individuals who are, are from here um, and as well as foreign born. Um, but the majority of cases actually has been domestic victims. So I, I think it's important to acknowledge that that's a common myth. Um, 
we often, another common myth that uh, we just sort of covered is that it only happens in the city or in the bad part of my community, right? And that's not true. The internet has also exploded the accessibility of traffickers to, to really any location, right? Um, and so the internet, it's been coined sometimes as sort of the new street corner. Um, and so that has really dispelled the location myth. Um, another myth as it pertains to sex trafficking is that prostitution is a victimless crime. And I think we've been able to see a lot of that come down, crashing down, especially with the high profile cases that have been brought out into the light, like the R. Kelly, the Epstein, the Kraft, right? Like where, where society has sort of brushed those cases under the rug for a long time, that prostitution or escort services might be a victimless crime. I think those cases have helped at least waken up a good portion of our society. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, you know, the more data, the more understanding, the more we can get this information out there, the better chance we have to get people more aware and involved in this process. I want to do something a little bit different here, Jamie. I want to take a minute, you know, and if anyone's driving a car, don't do what I'm about to say, but if you're not driving a car, Close your eyes for a second and just pause into the moment and feel the anxiety of a child or an adult or a person stuck in the situation. Feel the fear, the reality of being in an environment where you have no control. Not only do you have no control, but you're actually in a painful state, whether it's being sexually abused or in 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 a drug situation because that's the way they're controlling you and understand this nightmare as it is inside this person. And if we all feel that really start to understand that this is all our problems. It's not just the problem for the person or their family. This is all our problems. These are our human brethren, sisters, mothers, brothers, everything. And in, 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 and to turn a blind eye to the situation is to me, traumatic at, at, at every core. And, uh, you know, this, this conversation is really moving me in a lot of ways. And so I really want people to feel this. So just sit with it for a second. Let's take a couple deep breaths. All right. So Jamie, you know, I'm going to open my eyes again. I think what you guys are doing is profound. And and for every person that's helped, I applaud all of your effort. You guys are a nonprofit organization. You are providing an amazing experience for people to come out of a traumatic nightmare. You're giving them safe space to live in for two years, which is not a small lift. This is a heavy lift. Where can people find out more about your organization and how can they give in a monetary way, a helping way? What can they do to be a part of this, for what I call a healing path? Yeah, well, well, thank you for just opening up this space and thank you to everybody who's taken the time to listen today. I know that this is a heavy subject um, and I echo what you're saying that it, it, it is all our community. And, and I have always felt that way since I learned about this, this issue myself, um, that I couldn't 
walk away from trying to do whatever I could in my part. Um, so if you'd like to learn more about the services that we provide, um, you can go to our website is probably the easiest way. So peht.org is our website. So partnership to end human trafficking, peht.org. And you can click on our links to learn more. Um, we do a quarterly newsletter that we have up there. Um, and we certainly have ways that you can donate um, to give to this work. Um, and any amount helps. Um, and we are just so appreciative because that's what sustains us. That's what sustains um, survivors when they move out, our ability to help them furnish their new apartment, to help them transition and plan. It sustains our ability to provide them with meaningful employment um, while we build up what we hope is a very successful social enterprise business. And another fun way that you can get yourself and kids involved, the whole family, is we have created, I've mentioned, our social enterprise business, which is a pet retail focused business. And so our signature product is a handcrafted dog leash that dog, uh, so puppy or large dog leash that our survivors have created. Um, and it is handmade locally out of our shop in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and we ship everywhere nationally. So um, if you have a pet that is your loved one as well, we encourage you to buy a leash that directly 100% of those funds go back into the business. Our business is fully um, mission driven and under our nonprofit. And so every dollar goes back into the direct care of survivors and the employment of survivors. Um, and we have other products, t-shirts that are fair trade made. Um, we have water bottles, uh, crafted note cards. So, you know, check out our store. That's also on our website. So just pht.org and then you can shop. Um, and that's a great way to get kids involved too. You can buy a dog leash, you can sport it at an event um, and tell people about what it means to you and what it means in terms of the part you can play in supporting survivors. So um, we would love for you to, to continue to advertise that and support that. Yeah, I know what I'm going to be buying some Christmas presents this year for sure. Uh, you know, it's a, a great way, you know, again, I think the beauty of offering your residents a way to have a buildup of self-esteem by making products. Again, I think these are these are small but incredibly impactful choices you're making to give people a place to live, but also a place to grow themselves. It can't be underscored enough how important that is. Do you guys have a Twitter page? Do you have a Facebook page? Do you have a, I don't even know what other pages are. I don't do social media, <laughs> but other people do. So I need you to get it out there if it is. Yeah. So I would say the easiest way is follow us on Instagram. If you use Instagram, our handle is just our, once again, our name. So capital P dot capital E dot capital H dot capital T. So just find us on Instagram and follow our page, uh, like our stories, share our content. That is always so helpful. Um, if you buy a leash, we have always encouraged people to take a picture of yourself with your dog and tag us in your photo. Um, that helps our pet shop to continue more sales. Um, and you can find us at at Global Pet uh, on Facebook. Um, we also have a Twitter account, which is our, our pet handle name as well. Um, but our, our most active social media presence is Instagram and Facebook. So I would encourage you listening to join us on that. And you can join in this movement from wherever you are, particularly as it relates to our business. Yeah. Amen. Everybody join in. This is a worthy, 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 worthy cause. About 105 million worthies after that. So one last question, Jamie, if you had a golden ticket 
and I didn't prep you for this, so I'm going to apologize in advance, but I don't prep anybody. If you have a golden ticket and you're allowed to take it to Congress or the president to get one thing changed, and I'm going to give you a second to think while I tell you what I would do, I would take that golden ticket. I would immediately tell Congress that they have to change school food. They are no longer allowed to give our children ultra processed garbage. They have to feed them fresh fruits, vegetables, organic, real healthy stuff. So we can stop the downstream nightmare of metabolic disease that's occurring in our society. What do you want to do? So maybe my golden ticket can have a few pronged approach as much legislation does. <laughs> I, Give me that option, but I might take that. <laughs> all right, run um, with it. All right. So I would say we would go after the demand aggressively um, because without a demand, then suppliers would have no one to sell vulnerable people to. So we would aggressively go after demand and we would change the paradigm and the culture of what it means to commodify an individual for sexual purposes. Um and we would, and I'm focusing, I'll, I'll just, I'll focus my ticket right now. The labor of trafficking is also incredibly powerful on sex trafficking. And we would, we would comprehensively provide the restorative services that are needed for individuals who have experienced this heinous crime. And we would not blame them for the behaviors that they may exhibit that are societally unacceptable, like anger or inability to maintain housing or inability to, or, or substance use. And we would comprehensively trauma-informed, survivor-informed focus on giving them the care that they deserve so they can live, restore their lives. That's my. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, God bless you, Jamie. You know, you and your organization are doing God's work. However you look at it, I am, uh, grateful to have known to know you now and to be a part of your work. And I definitely am going to stay involved and see how this goes over the time and hopefully get you back on down the road and see what more great work you guys are doing and maybe get some more real time stories. But as it stands today, I just want to say thank you very much from the bottom of my heart for giving of yourself to help others who are less fortunate, frankly, way less fortunate because they were traumatized, not just without they have actually been made less than so Thank you for all that you do. Thank you. I feel blessed to be able to do the work we do. So thank you for the, having us. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too. So when we begin to break down this conversation, the first thing that hits me right away is it is unbelievable how humans could do this to other humans. But as with the history of time has taught us, money drives bad behavior. And with human trafficking being a $150 billion business annually, it is no strange reality that bad humans are perpetrating bad things on other humans. The fact that it's the second largest and fastest growing illegal business in the world is very scary and very daunting statistic to actually discuss in our local region. We're seeing major issues with this and it's a very unfortunate reality for humans to be stuck in a situation that has humans putting other humans into modern slavery as the end result of a behavior in order to make a living for these drug and human traffickers. 
I think that what Jamie and her group is doing is exceptional. One, to be involved in trying to raise awareness about such a traumatic experience that occurs worldwide and even in our country at such a high volume. But to also offer a runway for the survivors who happen to break free of this net of nightmare, where they have a residential home that is committed to providing them an environment free from exploitation. And they have a safe, secure home to begin a new life. You know, it is a whole human approach where they're really helping people deal with the traumas of these indignified nightmares that they're put through. They're also given, you know, therapy, education, vocational training, you know, through their social justice programs. And they have specifically trauma and trafficking informed treatment and activities for behavioral health, you know, help, I guess would be the simplest way to put it, you know, resurrecting the part of the brain that was abused and, and giving it back a free way to live the best life that is possible within the framework of knowing the traumatic events that happened to you. They work on daily living skill acquisition so that when and if these survivors get out into the real world, they're capable of living a functional life, learning how to budget, you know, basic lifestyle skills like cooking and housekeeping, as well as how to deal with public transportation, how to deal with the environment, as well as get jobs and live. I mean, that's a whole human approach, and it is a beautiful thing. Their focus on helping survivors to thrive after such terrible adversity is what they call the sanctuary model for trauma. It is informed on safety, emotions, loss in the future. And that in and of itself is something to be applauded. Helping these people build trusting relationships after being completely made untrustworthy in the sense of those around them are untrustworthy and trying to find happiness in their new norm. And for that, it's a beautiful thing. Jamie Manier Kiza has 10 years of experience plus in this field, has developed an incredible program. And, you know, I think for me, the last piece of this understanding is, you know, if we can do our part in any way, shape or form, you know, by helping uh, raise awareness, number one, clearly, which is what I'm trying to do with this podcast and the newsletter, but also raise awareness by discussing it, even though it's a heavy topic with your local neighbors and friends. And then, you know, maybe going to their website, uh, dot org, And they have a, a pet shop link there where you can buy animal leashes and collars and other gifts, um, which are made by the survivors and then use that money to provide services for these women and other survivors that are part of the program. They also have a fundraiser coming up this fall and on the newsletter, there will be links to how to, uh, sign up if you're in the local area to go to the fundraiser, but also, um, just donate directly. Uh, to this fundraiser. It's called Join the Journey. It's October 15th at the Norwalk Art Space in Norwalk, Connecticut. And so you can go on the website, SalisburyPediatrics.com. It'll be linked there. If you receive the newsletter directly to your inbox on Monday mornings, it'll be there as well. So from that perspective, I want to thank Jamie for her time. I want to thank all of you for listening uh, to this very 
heavy, disturbing, but incredibly powerful topic to talk about empowering women and survivors of human trafficking to refine their lives and hopefully raise awareness to get this unbelievable scourge on society stopped. And so as always, I end with hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or another healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. The podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.